Welcome to today's podcast. We're going to be reading Gloria Copeland's book, Limitless Love. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is written, Some people believe that God loves them and wants to protect them, but they let the threats of the devil shake their confidence. They quake in their boots when he speaks to them through thoughts and circumstances and says, I am going to ruin you financially. I am going to steal your children. I am going to kill you. They let the devil sell them the idea that he's big enough and strong enough to separate them from the love of God. But the Bible tells us clearly that the devil can't do that. All he can do is come like a salesman and make his his pitch to see if we'll buy it. If we do, he can steal the blessing. If we don't, he can't do a thing. He doesn't have the authority. All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to Jesus. And you've been giving his name. That means the devil has no right to ride rough shot over you. He has given he has to get your permission, either by pressuring you or deceiving you. Don't give it to him. Do what first Peter five nine says to do instead. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Why do you have to resist steadfastly? Because the devil is persistent. He'll just keep pestering you, and you have to keep resisting him. When he assails you with doubts and fears, you must keep answering them with the word of God. 14,000 times a day, if necessary. Keep saying what Jesus said. Jesus said, it is written that we shall live by the word of God. If you do, he will eventually get scared and run away. That's right. When you resist with the word and in the name of Jesus, the devil has to flee from you. Of course, our odds are you are dealing with the devil himself anyway. He's not omnipresent. There's just one of him. And he can only be one place at one time. So he has a lot of little low-level devils working for him. Those are the imps he sends to aggravate you. Think about that. Here you are, born again, Holy Spirit-filled, child of Almighty God, empowered with the name and authority of Jesus. Wouldn't it be ridiculous for you to let some minor devil intimidate you? Wouldn't it be stupid to let him talk you into believing that God doesn't deliver and protect you? Sure it would. No devil in the world is that big shot he makes himself out to be. Remind him of that next time he threatens to to do something to you. Say, it is written, devil, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And the word, nothing certainly includes you. Amen. That was for November 9th. And now November the 10th says, by Gloria also, ask the right questions. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. 2 Corinthians 2.14
New American Standard. But thanks to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. God works through us by us giving thanks to God because we are in Christ Jesus triumphing. Amen. Sometimes God doesn't give us the answers we want because we're asking the wrong questions. When we get in trouble, for example, and something bad happens in our lives, we probably won't hear much from him if we say, God, why did you let this happen to me? If we're even tempted to ask that question, we ought to put our hands over our mouths and stop ourselves. Why? Because that question is based on a lie of the devil. It's based on an assumption that God is responsible for the evil in our lives. See James 1.13. But he isn't responsible for it. God isn't the one who lets bad things happen to us. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who blesses and cares for us. If we fall prey to calamity or harm, it's either because we open the door to it ourselves through disobedience, ignorance, or unbelief. It is because the devil is attacking us and we aren't resisting him like we should. If you want to ask God the right questions once, well, he will answer, try these. Lord, what can I do to triumph over this trouble? How do I stop being a victim and start acting like the victor you made me to be? When you think about it, that's really what you need to know anyway. After all, it doesn't really matter what got you into trouble. What's important is how to get out. How to get you out. If we're honest, most of the time we know how we got there. We can easily look back and see the mistakes we made. When Ken and I first got saved, for example, we were in terrible financial shape. We were so deep in debt we had no hope, naturally speaking, of ever getting out. It was no mystery how we got there. Ken had been borrowing money for years. I think he borrowed money on his tricycle. I married him and his debts. Then I helped him increase them. Thankfully, we're smart enough to realize even back then that God didn't get us into that condition. We didn't know much, but we knew that, and he, and we saw in the word that he loved us and was willing to help us out. So we said, Lord, show us the way. Tell us what to do, and we'll obey you. You can absolutely count on God to give you that information. So start asking him the right questions based on your confidence in his love for you. He will always lead you into triumph in Christ Jesus and show you what to do. One of the prayers that I like, I said, Okay, God, it is true that I got into this situation because of my my laziness, Lord. I wanted something and I didn't save for it. Now I'm stuck with these situations. I admit it, Lord, I messed up, I admit it, I am, and I accept full responsibility, Lord. Now, what can I do about it, Lord? I accept that i done the wrong. Now, Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your kindness, Lord. What, what can I do about it now through your mercy? In Jesus' name, God always answers his 
prayers. Amen. John G. Lake, page 5. The Strong Man's Way to God. Excuse me. That's chapter 5. Page 43, 42, page 42. Musicians talk of an ultimate note. That is a note you will not find on any keyboards. It is a peculiar note. A man sits down to tune a piano or any fine instrument. He has no guide to the proper key, and yet he has a guide. That guide is the note that he has in his soul. And the nearer he can bring his instrument in harmony with that note in his soul, the nearer perfection he has attained. There is an ultimate note in the heart of the Christian. It is the note of conscious victory through Jesus Christ. The nearer our life is turned to that note of conscious victory, the greater the victory will be evidence in our life. In my ministry, says John G. Lake, in South Africa, there was a young lady, one of the most beautiful souls I have ever known. She was baptized in the Spirit when perhaps only 17. Oh, one of the remarkable developments in her after her baptism in the Spirit was the Spirit of God would come powerfully upon her on occasions, and at such times she would sit down at the piano and translate the music her soul heard. Other times the Spirit would come upon her so powerfully that she would be caused to sing the heavenly music in some angelic language. God gave her the gift of interpretation, so that quite frequently when the Spirit would come upon her, she would re-sing the song in English or Dutch, as the case may be. Her father and mother were both musicians. They soon learned that when the spirit dust came upon her, they could record the music. The father would stand at one side and take the words of the song as she sang them, while the mother stood at the other side and recorded the music as she played the music on the instrument. In this way, a great deal of the music was preserved. Some years later, Clara Butts, the great prima donna, came to Africa. She was singing at the Wanderers Hall in Johannesburg. One evening after the concert, while being entertained at the hotel, I was introduced to her. She said to me, Mr. Lake, I have been very anxious to meet you, for I have heard that among you, your people is a remarkable woman who receives music in the spirit, apparently of a different realm than ours. I said, yes, that is a fact. She inquired if it would be possible to meet her. And so a meeting was arranged. <laughs> One meeting, she went to her hotel, and we, as, we, as we sat down, Clara Bud said to the young lady, I wish you would sit down and play some of the music I have heard about. She did not understand that such music only came at such time as the Spirit came powerfully upon the woman. However, the young lady sat down at the piano. I said to the company, Let us bow our heads in prayer. As we did and waited, presently the Spirit of God descended upon her, and then she poured through her some soul, some of that wondrous, beautiful, heavenly music. I waited to note the effect on the company. 
When the song was finished, I looked especially at Clara Buss, who was weeping silently. She arose to her feet, and coming forward to the piano, she read out, reached out her hand, saying, Young lady, that music belongs to a world that my soul knows little about. I pray every day of my life God may permit me to enter in that realm is, is the ultimate which my soul sometimes hears, but which I have never been able to touch myself. Beloved, in the Christian life, in the heart of God, there is an ultimate note. That note which is so fine and sweet and true and pure and good that it causes all our nature to respond to it and rejoices the soul with a joy unspeakable. All down through the ages, some have touched God and heard the ultimate note. I believe that as David sat on the mountainside as a boy, caring for his father's sheep, God, by the Spirit, taught him the power and blessing of that ultimate note. I believe at times that his soul ascended into God so that many of the Psalms of David are the real soul notes of that blessed expression of heavenly music and heaven consciousness which came into the soul to the shepherd's boy. Mary, the mother of Jesus, understood that note. I remember when I was a young man in a Methodist Bible class, which I taught, we were discussing the subject of the Magnificat, that glorified expression which birthed from the soul of Mary as she met Elizabeth. When the Spirit came upon her and revealed to her friends that she was to be the mother of Jesus, in our worldly wisdom, we decided, of course, that the Jewish woman of necessity must have been educated to compose that character of poetry spontaneously. Many a day afterwards, as I saw the Spirit of God descend upon a soul and the soul break forth into a song of God, the song of the angels in a note so high and sweet and pure and clear as no human voice ever had produced perhaps without it, I understood the marvel that was taking place in the soul of Mary. When she broke forth into the heavenly expression of that holy song, my soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced sit in God my Savior. Luke 146-47 My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. It was the Spirit of the Lord, her Spirit, that had ascended, blessed God, into the heavenlies. Her Spirit had touched heaven's notes. Her Spirit was receiving and reproducing the song of joy that she heard, possibly of the angels, or perhaps intuitively from the heart of God. There is a Christianity that has a high note in it. Bless God indeed. Christianity itself, real Christianity, is in that high note of God. That thing of heaven that is not of earth, it is not natural. Bless God, it is more than natural. It is the note of heaven. It comes to the earth. It fills the soul of man. Man's soul rises into heaven to touch God, and in touching God receives that glorified expression and experience into his own soul, and it, it is reproduced in his own life and nature. Beloved, there is a victory in God, the victory that characterizes the common walk of a high-born Christian. 
It is the strong man's salvation. It is the salvation that comes from God because of the fact that the spirit of man touches the spirit of God and receives that experience that we commonly speak of as the blessing of salvation from God. But, beloved, the soul that receives from God into his spirit, the heavenly touch, knows, bless God, he does not have to be told by man. He knows by the spirit of God that he has become the possessor of the consciousness of union with the spirit of God, which has enlightened his heart, filled his soul with holy joy, and caused his very being to radiate with God's glory and presence. The hunger of my soul for many a long day has been that I might be able to present that high true note of God. Let the souls of men will rise up in God to that place of power, purity, and strength where the presence and character and works of Christ are evidenced in and through them. There can be no distinction between the exercise of the real power of God as seen in Jesus and its reproduction in a Christ soul. There is a purity, the purity of heaven, so high, so holy, so pure, so sweet, that it makes the life of the possessor radiant with the glory and praise of God. During one of those periods of extreme necessity in our great work in South Africa, our finances became cut off for various reasons. I was anxious that there would be no letting down of the work we were then doing and with thrusting that it would not be necessary to withdraw our men. We had labored and suffered to get the work established on the frontier. However, not being able to supply funds to those on the front, I, I deem it the only wise thing to do to get them all together in a general conference and decide what was to be our future action. By great sacrifice, a sacrifice too great for me to tell you of this Afternoon, we succeeded in bringing in our, our missionaries from all from a council. I told them the exciting existing conditions, and we sat down in the nighttime to decide what would be our future policy. After a time, I was invited by a committee to leave the room for a minute or two while I was in the in the vestry. The brethren in the body of the tabernacle continued their conference and went on discussing the general question. When I returned, they said to me, Brother Lake, we have arrived at a decision. Old Father Van, though well, spoke up for the company. He said, We have reached this conclusion. There is to be no withdrawal of any man from any position. We feel that the time has come when your soul ought to be relieved of responsibilities for us. We feel we have weighed your life long enough, but now, by the grace of God, we return to our stations to carry on our work. We live or die depending on God. If our wives die, they die. If our families die, they die. If we survive, we survive. But we are going to back to our stations. This work will never be withdrawn. We have one request. Come, serve the communion of the Lord's Supper to us one more while we stand here together. As I took the cup, they arose and stood in a large circle. I took the bread and passed it. It went from hand to hand around the circle. When it came time to pass the wine, I took the cup in my hand, and with the usual statement that Jesus gave in the committal to himself to God, 
my blood of the New Testament. Mark 14:24. I passed it on, and the next one, looking up to God, he said too, my blood of the New Testament. And so it passed from hand to hand, clearly around the circle, hearing the words, my blood of the New Testament. Within a few months, I was compelled to bury 12 out of the of that company. Every one of them might have lived if we could have supplied the ordinary essential things they ought to have received. But beloved, we have made our place to God. We had declared by the love of God in our souls and because of what Christ had done for us that we should be true to Him and that in the name of Christ, His gospel should be spread abroad as far as it was in our power to do so. We buried 12 of that company. Men have said that the cross of Christ was not a heroic thing, but I want to tell you that the cross of Jesus Christ has put more heroism in the souls of men than any other event in human history. Men have lived and rejoiced and died believing in the living God in the Christ of God whose blood cleansed their hearts from sin and who realized the real high spirit of his holy sacrifice. Bless God. The manifested to mankind the same measure of sacrifice and endured all that human beings could endure and with endurance was no longer possible, they passed on to be with God, leaving the world blessed through the evidence of a consecrated deep and true and pure and good like the Son of God Himself. We see the note that was in the soul of Paul in which characterized his message. When he had made the splendid declaration, which I read from Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of Christ unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. You see, the note that touched the souls of men, the note that rang down through the centuries and which rings in your heart and mind today, Christianity never was designed by God to make a lot of weaklings. It was designed to bring forth a race of men who were bold and strong and pure and good. Blessed be God, the greatest and the strongest and the noblest is always the humblest. The beautiful things in the gospel is that it eliminates from the life of man that which is of himself and is natural and fleshly and earthly. Bless God, it brings forth the beautiful things within the soul of man. The unselfishness, the life of purity, the peace, the strength, and the power of the Son of God. How beautiful it is to have the privilege of looking into the face of one whose nature has been thus refined by the Spirit of the living God. How beautiful it is when we look into the soul of one whom we realize God has purged by the blood of Christ until the very characteristics of the life and attitudes of the mind of Christ are manifested and evident in Him to the glory of God. Christianity is a strong man's gospel. Christianity, by the grace of God, is calculated to take the weak and fallen and erring and suffering and dying, and by applying the grace and power of God through the soul of man to the need of the individual, 
lift them up to the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 Blessed be God. Down in the human heart, crushed by the temper, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by loving heart, weakened by kindness, cords that were broken will vibrate once more. I care not how crushed the soul, how bestialized the nature. I care not how sensual, if touched by the spirit of the living God, he should shed off that which is earthly and sensual and give forth, once again, the pure note of the living God. Heaven's high message, heaven's triumphant song, heaven's high note of living, praise to the living God, blessed be his name. God is endeavoring by his spirit in these days to exalt the souls of men into that high place, that holy life, that heavenly state where men walk day by day, hour by hour in the heavenly consciousness of the presence of Christ in the heart of all of men all the time. And the presence of Christ in the soul of man can only produce first the purity that is in him, for the wisdom that is from above is pure first pure. James 3, 17. Bless God, purity is of God. Purity is one of the natures of Christ. Purity is heaven's high-born instinct. Filling the soul of man, making him in his nature like the Son of God. Upon that purified soul, there comes from God that blessed measure of the Holy Spirit. Not only purifying the nature, but empowering him by the Spirit, so that the activities of God, the gift of his mind, the power of his Spirit, is evident by the grace of God in that man's soul in that man's life, lifting him by the grace of God into that place of holy and heavenly dominion, in the consciousness of which Jesus lived and moved and accomplished the will of God, always. Not the earth consciousness, that the holy consciousness, the consciousness of living God, of his union with him, which caused the Christ to walk as a prince indeed. Bless God. He was not bowed and overcome by conditions and circumstances about him, but realized that the soul of man was a creative power, that it was within his soul and common to his nature and the nature of every other man to protect, accumulate, and possess as sons of God that through the creative faculty of his soul the desires of your heart might be brought to pass. Blessed be his name. That is the reason God dared to talk as he did to Moses. That is the reason God dared to rebuke a man when he stopped to pray. That is the reason God said, Why standest thou here and criest unto me? Lift up thy rod that is in thy hand and divide the waters. Exodus 14, 15, and 16. Beloved, your soul will never demonstrate the power of God in any appreciable degree until your soul conceives and understands the real vision of the Christ of God, whereby he knew that through his union with the living God, his soul became the creative power through which he took possession of the power of God and applied it to the needs of his own soul and the needs of other lives. I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 
I am the resurrection and the life. Bless God, Lazarus was dead. Their friends were weeping, but the Christ was there. Bless God. Open up his soul to God in a cry of prayer. The Spirit of God so moved within him that the consciousness of his high dominion in God to possess him, that he gave forth the wondrous command, Lazarus, come forth. John 11:43. And the dead obeyed the call, and the spirit that had gone on into the regions of the dead returned again, was joined to the body, and Lazarus was restored by the power of God. Blessed be his holy name. When a boy, I received my religious training on the little Methodist class meeting. I wish there were some old-time Methodist class meeting in these modern days. The kind that had the power of God and the needs of men's souls were met in them, where people could open their hearts and tell of their temptations and their trials and victories and receive counsel from one who guided the class. In such a class meeting, and to such a class meeting, I owe a great deal of the development of Christ, which God has brought forth in my life. In one of these class meetings one day, as I sat listening to the testimonies, I observed there was a kind of weakening trend. People were saying, I am having such a hard time. I am feeling the temptations of the world so much, etc. I was not able at that time to tell people what was the difficulty. I was only a young Christian. But when they got through, I observed the old class leader a gray-headed man, he says something like this, Brethren, the reason we are feeling the temptation so much, the reason there is a lack of sense of victory is because we are too far away from the Son of God. Our souls have descended. They are not in the high place where Christ is. Let our souls ascend, and when they ascend into the realm, of the Christ, we will have a new note. It will be the note of victory. Beloved, that is the difficulty with us all. We have come down out of the heavens into the natural, and we are trying to live a heavenly life in the natural state, overburdened by the weights and cares of the flesh and life all about us. Bless God, there is the deliverance, there is victory. There is a place in God where the flesh no longer becomes a bondage, where by the grace of God, every sensuous state of the human nature is brought into subjection of the living God, where Christ reigns in and glorifies the very activities of a man's nature, making him sweet and pure and clean and good and true. Bless his holy name. I call you today, beloved, by the grace of God, that the high life, that the holy walk to the heavenly atmosphere, to that life in God where the grace and spirit and power of God permeates your whole being more where not only your whole being is in subjection, but it flows from your nature as a holy stream of heavenly life to bless other souls everywhere by the grace of God. There was a period in my life when God lifted my soul to a wondrous place of divine power. Indeed, I speak it with all conservatism, 
when I say that I believe God gave me such an anointing of power as has seldom been manifested in modern life. That anointing remained with me for a period of eight months. One of the evidence of the power of God of that period was that God gave me such a consciousness of dominion to cast out evil spirits that the insane were brought from all quarters of the land. Slobbering idiots. In many instances, as I approached them, the Spirit of Christ would rise up in me in such dominion that when I got to them, I could take hold of them and looking in their face would realize that God had given me the power to cast it out. Hundreds of times the insane were healed instantly, right on the spot. I have been a student of all my life, not just a student of letters, but of the things of the soul. God helped me by His grace to take note of and analyze the condition of my own soul. I noted that when the high consciousness of heavenly dominion rested upon my life, there was one thing that stood uppermost in all my consciousness. That was the vision of the triumphant Christ, the Son of God, as pictured by John in the first chapter of Revelation where he stands forth in the mighty dignity of an overcomer, declaring, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 1.18 Again, let me state that again. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 1.18 Beloved, I want to tell you that the soul joined to Christ and who exercised the power of God ascend into that high consciousness of heavenly dominion as it is in the heart of Jesus. Christ today, for he is the overcomer, the only overcomer. But yet when my soul is joined to his soul, when his spirit flows like a heavenly stream through my spirit, when my whole nature is unfilled, and inspired by the life from God, I too, being joined with Him, become an overcomer indeed and in truth. Glory be to God. I am glad that God has permitted man, even at intervals, to rise into that place of high dominion in God. For it is demonstrates the purposes of God. It demonstrates that He purposes we should not only rise into the high place of intervals, but that this should be the normal life of the Christian who is joined to God every day and all the time. Christianity is not a thing to be apologized for. Christianity was the living consciousness, life, and power of the living God, transmitted into the nature of man, until, bless God, man's nature is transformed by the living touch, and the very spirit, soul, and being is energized and filled by his life. Thus you become indeed, as Christ intended, a vertible Christ. Vertible Christ. That startles some people, but the ultimate of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the ultimate of the redemption of the Son of God is to reproduce to and make every man bound by sin and held by sensuousness and enslaved by the flesh like himself, indeed and in truth, sons of God. Not sons of God on a lower order, but sons of God as Jesus is. 
Paul declares, He gave some apostles, some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers. What for? Till we all come into the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 and 13. Bless God, not a limited life, but an unlimited life. The idea of Christ, the idea of God was that every man through Jesus Christ, through being joined to him by the Holy Spirit, should be transformed into Christ's perfect image. Glory be to God, Christ within and Christ without. Christ in your spirit, Christ in your soul, and Christ in your body. Not only living his life, but performing his works by the grace of God. That is the gospel of the Son of God. That is the thing that Paul was not ashamed of. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 If any man has a question within his soul of the reality of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as it has been poured out upon the world in these last 10 years, that question ought to be settled in your soul forever by one common test. That test is that it has raised the consciousness of Christianity to realize what real Christianity is. If anyone wants to analyze the development that has come into Christian consciousness during the last 200 years, all they have to do is to begin and follow the preaching of the great evangelists who, who have moved the world. Think of Jonathan Edwards, who thundered the terrors of God and what hell was like until the men grasped their seats and hung on to them, fearing they were falling into hell itself. Men were moved by fear to escape damnation. That was believed to be Christianity. Why any coward wanted to keep out of hell, he might not have had one idea in his soul of what was the tr real true earmark of Christianity. After a while, others went a step further, and you can note the ascending consciousness. They said, no, saving yourself from hell and punishment is not the idea of the gospel. The idea is to get saved so as to go to heaven. And so men were saved in order to go to heaven when they died. I have always had a feeling in my soul of wanting to weep when I hear men pleading with others to become Christians so they will go up to heaven when they die. My God, is there no appeal outside of something absolutely selfish? Beloved, don't you see that Christianity was unselfishness itself? It had no consideration of the selfish individual. The thing held up above everything else in the world, and the only idea worthy of a Christian was that you and I and he himself might demonstrate to mankind one holy, high, beauteous, beauteous thing of which the world was deficient. And that was the knowledge of God. So Jesus said, Unto all righteousness, see Matthew 3.15. And he wrote it on the souls of men and brand it on their consciousness and stamped it on their hearts until the world began to realize the idea that was in the souls of Jesus. In the soul of Jesus. Unto all righteousness, 
becoming like Christ himself, a demonstrator of the righteousness of the living God. That is Christianity that only is Christianity for that was the consecration of the Christ himself. Unto all righteousness, becoming like Christ himself, a demonstrator of the righteousness of the living God. That is Christianity, and that only is Christianity, for that was the consecration of the Christ himself. The test of the Spirit, and the only test of the Spirit that Jesus ever gave, is the ultimate and final test. He said, By their fruits you shall know them, Matthew 7.20. That is the absolute and final test. Do men gather grapes or thorns or fig twistles, Matthew 7.16. So I say to you, if you want to test whether this present outpouring of the Spirit of God is the real thing, the real pure baptism of the Holy Ghost or not, test it by the fruits that it produces. It is producing in the world, as we believe it is, a consciousness of God so high, so pure, so acceptable, so true, so good, so like Christ, that is the Holy Ghost himself. Bless God, no other test is of any value, whatever. I want to tell you, beloved, that the ultimate test of your own, of the value of a thing that you have in your heart, is the common test that Jesus gave. By their fruits you should know them. By their fruits you should know them. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or twistles? Men, tell us in these days that sin is what you think it is what it is not sin is what god thinks it is you may think according to your own conscience that god thinks according to his god thinks in accordance with the heavenly purity of his own nature man thinks in accordance with the degree of purity that his soul realizes but the ultimate note is in god the finality is in god when men rise up in their souls, aspiring to the place of God's thought, then, bless God, the character of Jesus Christ will be evident in their lives. The sweetness of His nature, the holiness of His character, the beauty of the crowning glory that not only overshadow Him, but that radiated from Him, blessed be God, and the real life of the real Christian is the inner life, the life of the soul. Out of the heart, said Jesus, proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, Mark 7, 21, etc. These are the things common to the flesh of man. Out of the soul of man, likewise, proceeds by the same common law, the beauty, <clears throat> virtue, peace, power, and truth of Jesus as the soul knows it. <clears throat> so he whose soul is joined to Christ, may now, today, this hour, shed forth as a benediction upon the world the glory and blessing and peace and power of God, even as Jesus shed it forth to all men, to the praise of God. Here we do bless you with these words in your soul and your consciousness. Go forth in the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. My God, we bless thee for the idea of the gospel of Christ which thou hast established in the souls of men through the blessed Holy Ghost. God, we pray thee this afternoon that if we have thought lightly of the Spirit of God, 
If we have had our eyes fixed on outward evidence instead of the inward life, we pray thee to sweep it away from our souls. May we this day, God, see indeed that the life of God, his inner life, the true life, God's holy life, his practical purpose, that from a race of sinful men, saved through the blood of Christ, cleansed by the power of God, cleansed in the inner soul in every department of their nature, that the Christ life is to be revealed. And the Lord Jesus through them is to shed forth his glory and life and benediction and peace and power upon the world. Blessed be thy precious name. So my God, we open up our nature to heaven today, asking that the spirit of the living God will thus move in our own souls that by his grace we should be so perfectly truly cleansed of God that our nature will be sweet and pure and heavenly and true so that we can receive from God indeed the blessed sweetness of his pure holy heavenly spirit to reign in us to rule in us control us and guide us forevermore in Jesus mighty name amen Consecrated to principle. The power of consecration to principle, chapter 4 from John G. Lake's book, Life Stories. Page 31. The great purpose of Jesus Christ coming to the world was to establish the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is universal, containing all moral intelligence, willingness subject to the will of God both in heaven and on earth, both angels and men. The kingdom of heaven is Christ's kingdom on the earth, which will eventually merge into the kingdom of God. We read of that merging period in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, Then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now then, in order to establish a kingdom, there must be a basis upon which it is to be founded. When the Revolutionary Fathers got together in 76, they laid down in the Declaration of Independence the principles upon which American government was to be founded. They laid down as one of the first principles this one, all men are born free and equal. That every man by his being born a man is likewise born on an equality with all others. All men are born free and equal before the law. There is no special privilege. Next, they consider this as the second principle, that man, because of his birth and his free agency, was entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Third, the government rests on the consent of the governed. 
These were the underlying principles upon which the government was to rest. There was nothing little about them. They did not discuss the doctrines by which these principles were to be made effective, but they laid down the foundation principles upon which was built the greatest system of human government in the world's history. Now Jesus, likewise, when he came to found his kingdom, first enunciated the principles upon which his government was to rest. The eight Beatitudes, as they are given in his official declaration in his Sermon on the Mount, were the great principles upon which his government was to be founded. A principle is not a dogma or a doctrine. It is that underlying quality, that fundamental truth upon which all other things are based. And the principle of the kingdom of heaven are those underlying qualities upon which the whole structure of the Christ life rests. And the principle upon which the real government of, Christ, of Jesus Christ will be founded and exercised. The eight Beatitudes are the principle of the kingdom. The Sermon of the Mount is the constitution and the commandments of Jesus are his law of statute or statutes. First, the kingdom is established in the hearts of men. The principle of Jesus Christ are settled in our own spirit. We become the citizens of heaven in the kingdom, the aggregated citizenship of the kingdom in this present age constitute the real church, which is his body. And throughout the Christ age, the working of the body is to be apparent in demonstrating to the world the practicability and desirability of the kingdom of heaven, that all men may desire the rule of Jesus in the salvation of men. It is the purpose of Jesus to make the church, which is his body, his entire representative in the world, just as Jesus came to express God the Father to mankind, and Jesus was necessary to God in order that he might give an expression of himself to the world. So the world is necessary to Jesus Christ as an expression of himself to the world. Now, the first principle that he laid down was this one. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. Usually we come found with this one the other one, blessed are the meek, Matthew 5, 5. And we have commonly thought of one who is poor in spirit as being a meek, quiet person, possessing the spirit of meekness. But it is much more than that. The thing Jesus argued upon men was to practice what he had done himself. <clears throat> Jesus was the king of glory, yet he laid down all his glory. He came to earth, took upon himself our condition. He took upon himself our conditions. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Hebrews 2.16. He took upon himself the condition of mankind, <clears throat> that is, of human nature's liability to sin. Therefore, he was all in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. And because of the fact that he took him upon himself 
our nature and understood the temptations that are common to man, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Save us. Hebrews 2.18. He understands he is sympathetic. Christ, bless God. Now see, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed is he who regards the interests of the kingdom of heaven as paramount to every other interest in the world. Paramount to his own personal interest. Blessed is he whose interest in life, whose interest in the world is only used to extend that interest of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is he who has lost his own identity as an individual and has become a citizen of the kingdom. Blessed is he who sees the kingdom of heaven as the ultimate to be possessed. Blessed is he who forgets to hoard wealth for himself, but who uses all he has and all he is for the extension of the kingdom of heaven. He is putting the law of the love of God and of one another in practice. So after Jesus had laid down the things that he possessed, then, bless God, he was able to say to us, as he has experienced it himself, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5.3. We commonly think, as we read the word of God, that some of the teachings of Jesus were accidental, or we apply to a particular individual and, and to no one else. So we think of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 18, 18. Jesus said, Thou knowest the commandments, right? Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not seal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. The young man said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Then Jesus said to him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. Luke 18, 20 and 22. Don't you see, Jesus was applying to the young man that first principle of the kingdom. We have said that young man was covetous, and he loved his wealth, etc., and that was keeping him out of the kingdom of heaven. Not so, Jesus was applying one of the principles of the kingdom to that young man's life. He turned away sorrowfully. He had not developed to the place where he could do that thing. There is an apocryphal story that tells us that the rich young ruler was Barnabas. After the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Ghost, Barnabas received from heaven the thing Jesus had tried to impart to him. He forgot all about Barnabas, his own interests and his own desires, and he sold his great possessions and came with the others and laid them at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. So Jesus was able, after all, to get the real thing in the heart of Barnabas that he desired in the beginning. The real miracle of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost was not the outward demonstration of tongues, etc., but it produced such intense unselfishness in the hearts of all baptized that they each sold their lands and estates, parted the money to every man as he had needed. They were moved by God into one family. Their brother's interest was equal to their own. 
that was blessed are the poor in spirit. The second principle of the kingdom is this. <clears throat> blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. This figure is taken from the old prophets, who when the nation sinned, upon, took upon themselves the responsibility of the nation. They put sackcloth on their body and ashes on their heads. And in mourning and tears went down before God for days and weeks until the people turned to God. They became the intercessors between God and man, and in some instance in the word. We read where God looked and wondered. He wondered that there was no intercessor. There were no mourners who took upon themselves the responsibility of the sins of the people who dared to stand between man and God. We see how wonderfully Moses stood between God and the people. When God said to him, after they had made the golden calf, <clears throat> let me alone that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Exodus 33, 10. Moses said, not so, Lord. What will the Egyptians say? What will be the effect upon the great name? They will, will they not say that their own their God destroyed them. <clears throat> See Exodus 32, 11 and 12. God has said to Moses, I will make of thee a great nation. But Moses was big enough to turn aside the greatest honor that God could bestow upon a man to become the father of a race. These people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou will forgive their sins, and if not, block me, I pray thee, out of thy book, Exodus 32, 31, 32. The prophet Moses became the great intercessor. He took upon himself the burdens and sins of the people. And when he got down to confess, he did not say, oh, these people are so weak. And they do this and that. But when he, when he got down to pray, he would say, Lord God, we are unworthy. He was one with his people. He was identified with them as one with them. He was not putting any blame on them. He was big enough to take the whole blame, the entire responsibility, and go down before God and lay the whole matter before God until the blessed mercy of God was again given to the people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed is the man who comprehends the purposes of God, who understands his responsibility and possibility who by God given mourning and crying turns the people to God. With hearts yearning for sinners, he becomes a mourner before God and takes the responsibility of fallen men on his own life. He goes down in tears and repentance before God until men turn to God and the mercy of God is shown to mankind. And the day that God puts the spirit of mourning upon Pentecost, it will be the gladdest day that heaven has known. Blessed be his precious name. Do you know it always jars me down in the depths of my spirit when I hear people say hard things about churches and sex. That is not our place. Our place is as intercessors as the one who is to stand between the living and the dead as those whom God can trust and use to pray down the power and mercy and blessings of God. First, we see that the kingdom is based on principles. Principles are greater than doctrines. Principles are the foundation stones upon 
which all other things rest. Doctrines are the rules. The detail by which we endeavor to carry out things that the principles contain. But the principles are the great foundation stones upon which all things rest. Absolute consecration. Let us turn away from this until we see Jesus at the Jordan consecrating himself of his own life work. Then we will understand how the Christian is to consecrate himself to carry out the principles. The word tells us that when Jesus began to be about 30 years of age, he came down to the river Jordan where John was baptizing and presented himself for baptism. John looked in amazement at him and said, I have need to be baptized of thee and comest thou to me. But Jesus said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew three fourteen and 15. Unto all righteousness. Listen, hear the declaration to which Jesus Christ was baptized. It was his consecration unto all righteousness. There was no further to go. It comprehends all that there is of consecration and commitment unto the will of God and all there is of good unto all righteousness. Bless God. All righteousness. So Jesus understandingly permitted himself to be baptized of John unto all righteousness. Now listen, you and I have also been baptized but see, immediately after he was baptized, something took place. First, the Spirit of God came upon him as a dove and abode upon him. Then we read he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It was the Holy Ghost. In Leviticus 16, we see one of the beautiful figures which will illustrate that to you. On the Day of Atonement, there were brought two goats. One, the priest laid his hands upon, put a tow rope around his neck. Then the Levite took the tow rope and led it three days into the barren sand and wilderness and left it there to die. That is the picture of the life death of Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost is God's Levite. He put the tow rope on the neck of Jesus Christ and led him likewise three days, a year for a day, God's three days, into the wilderness. What for? To prove out, to test out the real fact of his obedience unto God and whether his consecration was going to stand. So the Spirit of Holy Ghost led Jesus into the wilderness. The spirit of Jesus Christ led him into the wilderness. The spirit of the Holy Ghost. Now, I want you to see something. We are trying beings just as God himself is trying. You will see the character of the consecration that Jesus made at the Jordan. God is triune. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Man is also triune. The word says, I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body to preserve blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 
So Jesus, when, when he went into the wilderness, encountered a peculiar temptation, a temptation peculiar to each separate department of his being. The word of God says he fasted 40 days and was and hungered. <clears throat> Satan came to him and says, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made in bread. Matthew 5.3 Jesus could not do it. If he had done that, he would have been exercising his own authority in his own behalf, and he had committed himself unto all righteousness. He only lived to express God. His only, he only lived to express the Father. He said the words I speak. I speak not of myself. The work that I do, I do not of, of that myself. See John 14.10. All he said and all he did and all he was was the expression of God the Father. May the Lord give us an understanding of the utterance of what real baptismal consecration ought to be. When an individual comes and commits himself to Christ once and for all and forever, he ceases to be, he ceases to live in his own behalf, to live for himself any longer, but becomes the utter expression of Jesus Christ to mankind. So Satan had no power to tempt a man who had made a consecration like that. The hunger calls of Jesus' body after he had fasted for 40 days were not enough to turn him aside from the consecration he had made to God. The second temptation was one particular to the mind. So he was taken to a pinnacle of the temple and Satan said to do something spectacular. Cast yourself down. Let the people see you are an unusual person. And then you can do unusual thing, And they will give you their claim. Jesus could not do that. There was nothing, bless God, in the mind of Jesus Christ that could tempt him to be disobedient to the consecration he had made to God. Until all righteousness, so he turned the temptation aside. The third temptation was one particular to the spirit by a supernatural power. Jesus is permitted to see all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of, of them in a moment of time. Then Satan said unto him, All these things will I give unto thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 8 and 9. But Jesus turned him aside. No crossless crowning for the Son of God, no bloodless glory for my Lord. He had come to express God to the world. He had come to demonstrate one thing to you and me. That is, that man relying on God can have the victory over sin and Satan. Bless God, that is the peculiar thing about the life of Jesus Christ that makes him dear to your heart and mine. After being on the tow rope of the Holy Ghost for three years, as the first goat, though the sorrows and the trials and disappointment of life ever ministered and blessing. Though the world cursed him, he was able to come as the second goat and present himself as a sinless, spotless sacrifice unto God at the cross. After going to on the tow rope of the Holy Ghost for three years as the first goat, Though the sorrows and the trials and disappointments of life ever ministering and blessing, though the world cursed him, he was able to come as the second goat and present himself as the sinless, spotless sacrifice unto God 
at the cross. If Jesus had fallen down anywhere along the line, if there had been a single instance where he had failed to express God to the world, he could have never been the Savior of the world. He became the author of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9. He was honored of God in being permitted to die for mankind. Having triumphed, having presented himself the sinless, spotless sacrifice unto God, his blood flowed for all other race. Blessed be his name. We have seen two things. We have seen the principles of Jesus Christ. We have seen his consecration to carry out those principles. He consecrated himself utterly unto the mind and will of God. But now we are going a step further. We come to the last night of the Lord's life. He is with his disciples in the upper room. <clears throat> Here comes the final act. The consummation of all his life. There is a face in this act I know the Lord has not made clear to many. They sat down around the table after they had eaten their supper. Jesus took bread and broke it and saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. And yet he was there in the flesh. Now what did it mean? What was its significance? This, by the act of the Lord Jesus Christ, pledged himself before God, before the holy angels, before men that he would not stop short of dying for the world. There was no limit. He was faithful even unto death. Just as he had been faithful in life and had lived each day the conscious life, death, dying to every desire of his mind and will and being, he is now going one step further. He is going to be faithful even unto death. So he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. After supper, likewise, he took the cup when he had drunk, saying, my blood of the New Testament, Mark eleven fourteen to 24. Now you listen from time immemorial, mankind have been in the habit of pledging themselves in the cup. There is no date that mankind has of its origin. It is so ancient we do not know when the custom began. When man began to place himself in the wine cup. But our Jesus sanctified the custom to God and his church forever. <clears throat> Jesus poured the wine into the cup and took it and said, This is my blood for the of the New Testament. This is my written blood of the New Testament to be written throughout history in the hearts of man. He drank that himself. That was the pledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having laid down the principles of the gospel of the Son of God, having walked and lived and suffered for three years, now he was going to the very uttermost. There was no further to go. He said, this is my blood 
of the New Testament, meaning he would give his life for the world. That is not all. That was his pledge, but after he had drunk, saying, Drink you all of it, Matthew 26, 27. And when they took the cup of which their Lord had drunk, they drank to the pledge. They were made partakers in the same pledge, and likewise pledged themselves. My blood of the New Testament, bless God. Christianity had character in it. Jesus Christ put character in it. Bless God, my blood of the New Testament. The other day, I was going over the list of the apostles as they are given by Hippolytus, one of the early writers, and he tells us that five of the twelve were crucified, just as Jesus was. Others died by the spear and sword, and three died natural death after enduring tortures. So it meant for them just what it means for their Lord, my blood of the New Testament. We see the degree of faithfulness to which they pledged themselves that night. We have loved and admired the spirit of the apostles. The spirit of Jesus Christ was so intense in the early Christians that millions of them gave their lives for the Son of God. Multitudes of whom died the death of martyrs and multitudes died in the war to exterminate Christianity. 30 million. Think of that. It gives some meaning to the saying that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. How often have you and I taken the Lord's cup? Has it meant to you and me? And does it mean that to you and me now? Beloved, I have no doubt that the sacred cup has touched many lips, perhaps the lips of most of you. If we have been understanding, comprehending Christians, we have realized it means to us what it did to the Lord. Our everlasting pledge of faithfulness. There is no place for sin in the Christian life. There is no place for letting down in the Christian's life. There is no place for weakening in the Christian life. Paul said, when they were having a hard time, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, Hebrews 12, 4. That was expected of them. They were expected to resist even unto death. So Paul says, you have not yet resisted unto blood. In the Revelation, the church in Smyrna is commanded, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life, Revelation 2.10. And this land, after our fathers had signed the old declaration of independence, they pledge. Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Then they went out and gave themselves to eight years of war in order to make it good. When people make a declaration on principles, it is going to cost them something, and it costs them something. After a while... The men in the old revolutionary army got where they did not have shoes on their feet, but in the depths of winter, they they tied straws and rags to their feet. They had stood by principles, and the British tracked them by the blood marks on the snow. So Jesus Christ, in enlisting an army, put them under a kindred pledge with himself. He pledged Christians on the same plane with himself, just as far as the Lord went. They went even unto death. 
The real purpose of becoming a Christian is not to save yourself from hell or to be saved to go to heaven. It is to become a child of God with the character of Jesus Christ, to stand before men, pledge unto the uttermost, even unto death, by refusing to sin, refusing to bow your head in shame, preferring to die rather than dishonoring the Son of God. If the character of Jesus Christ had entered into you and into that me, then it has made us like him in purpose. It has made us like him in fact. Bless God, his spirit is imparted to us. Bless God for the same unquenchable fidelity that characterized the Son of God. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation 2.10 Consecrated Prayer My God and Father, in Jesus' name I come to thee. Take me as I am. Make me what I ought to be in spirit, in soul, in body. Give me power to do right, for I have wronged any to confess, to repent, to restore. No matter what it costs, wash me in the blood of Jesus, that I may now become the child and manifest thee in a perfect spirit of holy mind, a sickless body to the glory of God. Amen. Be good, Lord, unto those, the souls that need you, Lord. We pray for them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Successful Christian life rests on three essentials. First, a knowledge of the teaching of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose words are the final authority, the bar where every question must be brought for final decision. The words of every other must be measured in their value determined by their statements of Jesus Christ. In him dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 2.9. Second, consecration to do all the will of God as declared by the Lord Jesus. Third, recognition of the Holy Spirit as a revealer, guide, inter interpreter, teacher, and empowerer. For without the presence of the Spirit of God in our hearts, our consecration will be valueless. We will not be able to live it, and without a knowledge of the teaching of Jesus, our consecration will be non-intelligent. <laughs>